Back in the 1940s, Mexican students across the American Southwest were forced to attend separate schools from their white peers. The Mexican school was terrible. It was two shacks made out of wood compared to the beautiful white school. That was Sylvia Mendez, and in 1945, her family joined four others in Orange County, California, to sue school districts over their Mexican-only school policy. Two years later, a federal judge ruled in the Mendez et al. versus Westminster case that those segregated Mexican schools were illegal in California. But as we mark the 75th anniversary of the ruling this month, many Americans, including a lot of Latinos, have never even heard of this landmark case. This story is history of the United States. History that nobody knows. California was the first state to be integrated out of all the states, and nobody even knows about it. They don't even talk about it. And now, history is at risk of repeating because in many ways, Latino students are more segregated than ever. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Thursday, April 14th, 2022. Here to talk about all this is my LA Times colleague, education reporter Paloma Esquivel. Paloma, welcome to The Times. Thank you for having me. Most folks know that Black students were in segregated schools until the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case uh, was decided in 1954. But few know that Latino students also face discrimination. So how far back should we go to trace the roots of this in California? Well, you know, Mexicans have been in California for hundreds of years. And the discrimination that we have faced has sort of changed over time. And in the 1800s, there weren't laws specifically obligating the segregation of Mexicans in schools. But what happened was that as our population started to grow, as there started to be more Mexicans in California, that's when really educational leaders started to enforce segregation against Mexicans. So in the 1920s, as there's more waves of Mexican laborers coming into the state, that's when you start to see more segregated schools. And it wasn't just school segregation. Mexicans could only swim in public pools on the day before park rangers dumped all that water to put in clean water. Mexicans had to go up in the balcony section at movie theaters. They couldn't live in the same neighborhoods with whites. All of this at a time where Mexicans were still just a minority. Right, exactly. And as the population started to grow, that's when those policies started to be implemented more and more. You recently had the chance to talk with Sylvia Mendez, and when her family sued, she was just eight years old, and now she's 85. What did she say about how her family got involved with the case? It was really incredible to get a chance to talk to her because her memories of all of this are still really vivid, and she's so passionate about it. So she remembers being a child. Her family lived in Santa Ana, and then they moved to Westminster to lease a a farm that had belonged to a Japanese-American family that had been interned, had been placed in an internment camp. And so her family took over this farm, were sort of the caretakers for it in the family's absence. And that was when her aunt took her and her cousins to enroll at the local school there in Westminster, the 17th Street School. And they were told, essentially, her aunt was told, well, you can enroll your children who were fair-skinned and had a sort of a French-sounding last name. 
You can leave your, your children here, Miss Vidari, but your brother's kids will have to go to a Mexican school. But the Mendez children, who were darker skinned and had a Latino last name, were not allowed to be enrolled. And they were told, hey, you have to go to the Mexican school. My father got really upset and couldn't believe it. He said, I'm not taking my children to the school then. They told my father, if you don't take your children to that Mexican school, you're going to jail. Because in California, if your children don't go to school, parents go to jail. And so that was sort of the start for the Mendez family, at least, of this years-long effort to, to challenge that decision. Yeah, I've heard Sylvia before in speeches talk about the differences between the Mexican and the white schools. And it was really stark, the rundown Mexican ones, while the school for white students were significantly nicer. Manicure lawns, palm trees, beautiful uh, concrete building. It had a playground right in front of it. And then just optics aside, the schools taught their students differently. White students got reading, writing, and arithmetic. Mexican students were learning domestic skills like knitting. How else were those Mexican-only schools different? I mean, I think essentially that is the heart of it, right? I was reading recently that some of these schools were actually right next to each other. You would have this beautiful white school, and right next to it would be this sort of rundown campus for Mexicans. Every time the bus would stop right there in front of that school, and I said, oh my God, my parents are fighting so I can get to that playground. I know that's what they're fighting for. All this time, I thought they were just fighting for me to get into a beautiful school, never realizing exactly what they were fighting for. And then the heart of it was exactly what you said, is that the expectation for white students is that they would become educated, that they would become professionals, and the expectation for Mexican kids is that they would do labor-intensive work. They would work in the fields, or they would work in carpentry, or doing other things that were labor-intensive. So a lot of it was just based on the idea that Mexicans just weren't expected to and weren't able to become professionals. So Sylvia's parents were very upset that their children had to go to this Mexican-only school. What got them involved in the lawsuit that ended up becoming Mendez et al. versus Westminster? Well, the way Sylvia tells it, her family decided to fight. Her dad decided this is not right and we want to challenge this. And he got together with other families, four other families from Orange County, Palomino, Ramirez, Guzman, and Estrada are the other plaintiffs. And worked to file a class action lawsuit representing thousands of, of students. And I would just say that it is important to note that this wasn't one family's struggle, that there was and always has been a long history of Latinos challenging these types of policies and practices in California and Texas um, and in other places where they occurred. So this was one in a long line of these sort of intermittent battles that happened and these families led the way to, to make this challenge. And they hired a lawyer from Los Angeles, David Marcus. So my father got all upset and he was talking to this man. And this man told him, Gonzalo, I just heard about Marcus. David Marcus, he just found a case in San Bernardino where they wouldn't allow the Latinos to go into the public parks. And he won that case with a 14th Amendment. He really set the stage to make the argument that you couldn't have these sort of separate but equal schools, that integration was a key part of the ways that schools and education should function in this country. 
So all these families filed the lawsuit. How do the school districts that they were suing respond? Well, the school districts essentially said, we're doing this for the benefit of these children. We are putting them in these schools to help them learn English and to help them better assimilate into the country. And that was the argument, even though eventually when the case went to trial, it became clear that the language part of it was just not even a real factor. There was no language test. There were students who grew up speaking English who were placed in these schools for no other reason other than that they were Mexican. The way the Mendez family remembers it, the superintendent, before the lawsuit was filed, the superintendent offered uh, to make an exception for the Mendez children and allow them to enroll in the all-white schools, but the family rejected that idea. Her parents decided, no, that they refused, that this was a larger battle and that they were working for something bigger than that. I said to my mother, mother, I am not going back to that school. Don't you know they don't want me there? She said, see that? Don't you know what we were fighting for? Yes, to get to a beautiful school with swings and, and everything. She said, no, Sylvia, that's not what we were fighting for. We were fighting because you're equal to everybody. Under God, we're all equal. And that's what we were fighting for. We'll continue the story after the break. And we're back with my L.A. Times colleague, education reporter Paloma Esquivel. So, Paloma, the five families who were part of this landmark case were the Mendez and the Estradas of Westminster, the Ramirez family of El Modina, which is a barrio in the city of Orange, the Guzman family of Santana, and the Palomino family of Garden Grove. They all eventually won Mendez et al. in federal court. What did the judge say? One of the key parts of his ruling is based on that idea that the United States had been functioning in a way where we were allowing this premise of separate but equal schools based on a Supreme Court decision called Plessy versus Ferguson, which was decades earlier. And the judge decided that equal protection is not provided by furnishing in separate schools the same technical facilities, textbooks, and courses of instruction to children of Mexican ancestry that are available to the other public school children, regardless of their ancestry. And so that was key. But at the same time, the case did not overturn that doctrine of separate but equal. That would come later with Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Brown versus Board of Education, which was decided eight years after Mendez et al. What, if any, influence did Mendez et al. have on Brown versus Board? One of the things that people point to that is a real point of pride from the Mendez case is that it drew national attention. And some of the organizers who had already been working on trying to dismantle school segregation really looked to the case. And in particular, the NAACP and Thurgood Marshall at the time, uh, when the case was appealed, they filed an amicus brief. And they were arguing that the court should end all educational segregation and consider it unconstitutional. The NAACP believes in an integrated society. Like it or not, that is what our constitution says. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the court didn't go that far. The ruling was narrow. It was limited to the districts that had sued. But this was another case that was just important in developing those arguments and pushing those arguments and getting a judge to say separate is not equal. That was an important moment in history. 
Sylvia Mendez has had a very successful life. She ended up going to an integrated school, earned a degree in nursing, ended up becoming the, an assistant nursing director at County USC Medical Center, the pediatric pavilion. How's she doing today? She's doing wonderful. She's 85 years old and she's still out there. You know, since her retirement, she has been going to school to school across the country telling this story trying to keep the memory of it alive, and and she's still doing it at at 85 years old. So it's a long struggle, but I know if I did it, I like to speak to students because nothing can prevent them from doing it, nothing. It just has to be, you know, have that perseverance and know that they can do it. 2011, Sylvia even received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama. For Sylvia Mendez, a lifelong quest for equality began when she was just eight years old. And ever since, she has made it her mission to spread a message of tolerance and opportunity to children of all backgrounds and all walks of life. How else have people tried to keep the story of Mendez et al. alive? I think slowly over the last couple of decades, there has been more and more recognition of this case and of the importance of it, in part because of Sylvia's work going school to school and community, but also because of uh, some of the other families that were involved in the case who have also worked to keep the memory alive. It's actually been quite incredible. In 2007, there was a commemorative postage stamp that was issued around the case. There have been multiple schools that have been named after the Mendez family. This month, actually, there was the Silvia Mendez Wellness Center dedicated at the Felicitas and Gonzalo Mendez Learning Center in Los Angeles. Welcome to Mendez High School. A wellness center like this will bring mental and health care services to all of its members. So that was one of the first times that something has been named after Sylvia for her work. Oh my God, I'm overwhelmed. I'm just so proud and honored. Oh my gosh, I can't even, I didn't even imagine this. And so all of these sort of efforts to keep the case alive, to keep the story alive, have resulted in some recognition around not just California, but also Texas. Uh, There's a school named after the Mendez family in Oklahoma. So it is gaining more and more recognition. I recently spoke at San Diego Canyon College in Orange. It's a community college. And we spoke right in front of the Lorenzo Ramirez Library. And Lorenzo Ramirez was one of the dads who was one of the plaintiffs in the Mendez et al. case. And yet, despite all of these efforts, very few people even know about this case. Why do you think that is? I think that it's complicated. I think a lot of times when students are, you know, going to school, they learn about Brown versus Board of Education, which was a seminal case, and it was a a huge moment in our history. At the same time, these sort of more local efforts that that really did make a difference and made a change sometimes don't get as much recognition. The Mendez case is part of, I believe, the ethnic studies curriculum for California, but unless you take one of those courses, you might not hear about it. So it hasn't quite gain that broad recognition, that widespread recognition that some other moments in history have gained. And also my colleague Molly Hennessy Fisk earlier this year wrote about efforts to declare some schools that had been Mexican segregated schools as historic landmarks. And that's part of it as well, right? So that people can go to these schools and remember what existed and remember that history. You recently spoke to someone who teaches this case to middle and high schoolers in Orange County. What's their curriculum like? 
Yeah, I spoke to uh, Lynn Lee, who's a curriculum specialist in Santa Ana Unified, and she has a course called The People's History of Orange County, which she teaches in the summer. It's focused on Santa Ana to teach them about the communities of color in and around Santa Ana that have historically existed here, which you don't find in the textbooks often. And just is really an effort to teach students about the history in their community. You know, she takes them to what was a historically Black segregated neighborhood in Orange County, Little Texas. Um, She takes them to Logan Barrio, which was one of the first Mexican communities in that area, to have students understand their local history and how that connects to what was happening on a national level. After the break, it's been 75 years since Mendez et al., but the fight to desegregate schools continues. And we're back. Paloma, before the break, we were talking about the importance of teaching Mendez et al. to students. But decades after it, we're hearing about studies and research that say American schools are more segregated than they were in the 1940s. Started going from city to city and and discovered, you know, that some of them were 100% Latino or 100% African-American, like the South part. At that time, the South part of Los Angeles, I don't know if it's still the same And that's when I just, I thought, oh, my God. What are these studies finding and how did this resegregation happen? You know, when I talked to Sylvia Mendez, one of the first things that she told me was, if you go to any of the schools that are named after my family, they're almost 100 percent Latino, which is true. And that's true of, I think there's more than 130 schools in California that are 99 percent or more Latino. Our society and our public schools are resegregating racially. They are doing it graphically, and they're doing it with a vengeance. There have been studies out of UCLA. Uh, the researcher Gary Orfield has done studies that say that California for Latinos is the most segregated state in the nation. By law, we cannot be segregated, but we have what we have, de facto segregation that's caused by a lot of evils. District lives, people living in certain neighborhoods, and they put the schools right in these neighborhoods, you know. And it just goes on and on. And this has happened slowly over the last several decades. A lot of it has to do with housing policy, the history of housing discrimination, and the current fact that a lot of communities resist low-income housing. Study director Gary Orfield says a high poverty level harms the instruction at many minority-dominated schools. Plus, he says everyone would benefit from a multicultural education. Orfield wants the government to enforce desegregation laws. And so essentially, the heart of it is when we have a state in which our communities are segregated and school district boundaries are related to those communities or associated with those communities, then our schools are also going to be segregated. And that is a much more challenging thing to fight than one specific policy that creates a segregated school. And it's also worth mentioning that our population has changed in California. We have a majority of Latino students. In LA Unified, I think it's something like 80% of students are Latino. So we have a different population, and then we have all of these policies that have resulted in segregated communities and, and then segregated schools. In a way, it was easier to fight school segregation when it was de jure. In other words, when it was the law, now that it's de facto segregation, meaning this just segregation because of other factors, it's in many ways, it's almost impossible to fight. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's still people who are trying to do it. There are still people who are pushing and saying we have to figure out ways to attack this, whether it be by changing housing policy, by allowing more low-income housing in, in various communities, whether it be by allowing or facilitating interdistrict transfers so that students can go from one district to another, whether it be by creating schools that might attract more diverse populations. You know, there are folks who are saying we still have to, we have to do something about this. Um, and then there's people who say what matters now is that schools like Mendez Intermediate, for example, which is about 99% Latino, that those schools just get the resources so that students who attend those schools get the opportunities that they need to succeed regardless of what the population is. So there's various thoughts about this, but I think that there's sort of a widespread recognition that overall, when you have segregated schools, students of color don't often get the same resources, don't often get the same opportunities. School segregation was even brought up during the 2019 Democratic presidential debates, uh, a famous interchange between then-candidates Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, we have to take it seriously. So how's the Biden administration approaching school integration? There has been uh, a proposal for a $100 million grant program that would allow schools to apply for funds to make their schools more racially or economically diverse. And what else are advocates saying that needs to happen to have, finally, actual integrated schools? I think for some people who've been working on this for quite a long time, there's a real frustration that there isn't more of a focus on this issue and there isn't legislative proposals. There isn't real efforts to change things about district boundaries. A lot of folks look to things like school choice as a way to create more diverse schools. So, for example, uh, a lot of experts on segregation schools feel really hopeful about dual language schools because those are schools that are meant to, one, value Latino students and their language, and at the same time, bring in students who don't have that language ability and mix those students, you know, and allow them to learn from each other. And so programs that really sort of value students for what they bring to the table both Latino students and non-Latino students and use that as part of the model for the schooling is something that a lot of experts say can really make a difference. But at the same time, like sort of on the bigger scale, there is not any real efforts to make a difference in terms of widely desegregating schools. Finally, how does Sylvia Mendez feel about 75 years after her family and others fought to integrate Mexican schools, she's back to where she started from. I think when I spoke to her, it sounded like mixed feelings, right? On the one hand, she's incredibly proud. She said something like, I think I've made my mom proud by telling this story and making sure it doesn't get forgotten by going into these classrooms. So glad to meet you, so proud of you. I'm so happy you're here at the school. I heard her over and over again telling these students, I'm so proud of you and you can do anything. And she has this like sort of real desire to like inspire these students. What is it you want to be? 
And try to get them to want to pursue their education. Right now, I'm living the American dream, and it's possible for everybody in this nation to dream that dream and to fulfill it like I have. And I think she's proud of the work that she's done. And she's proud that now there are Mendez schools and that there was a postage stamp. And there are these efforts to recognize her family. And at the same time, she's very realistic about where we are now and about the fact that Latino students are still struggling and in many ways are still being left behind. So I think that it sounded like there were mixed feelings that, that she had about where we are now. Paloma, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, speaking of famous court cases, we talk about an issue that has divided Americans for nearly 50 years, abortion and how a Supreme Court's decision later this year might have seismic consequences on it. David Toledo was a jefe on this episode, and our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, David Toledo, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shani Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. No, seriously, check your phone, check your laptop, tablet, Find that little button that says follow, click it, and you'll do us proud. Thank you. And me, of course, I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias. <laughs>